This series includes discussions of sensitive topics, including transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. On August 25th of 2021, people quietly filed into a courtroom in Clark County Superior Court. It was a Tuesday morning in Vancouver, Washington, the sixth day of the murder trial for now 27-year-old David Bogdanov. Even though this was a very publicized trial, only a handful of people were allowed to watch in person due to COVID restrictions. Most had to tune in from an online feed. Those who did attend in person included some of David Bogdanov's family members who sat behind him and his defense team. And a couple feet away, on the other side of the room, Nikki Kuhnhausen's mother, Lisa Woods, sat with several advocates. They all wore pink shirts in honor of Nikki. It was her favorite color. Lisa also wore a pink mask. Those days showing up every morning must have been hell. It was. How did you get through it? Um, I had really good support uh, around me. Um, Prayer. It was especially difficult for Lisa because she didn't have her husband Vince, Nikki's stepdad, with her. In the time between Nikki's murder and the start of the trial, Vince died. And sadly, Nikki's father, Kane, had also died in the same time frame. Neither of them would get the chance to see Nikki's killer brought to justice. I knew I had to be there for Nikki because both Kane and Vince were gone. I was the only one you know, parental-wise, left. And good morning. We're on record. State versus David Bogdanov. The state had rested its case the day before. The defense wished to call witnesses in its case. And now, the defense called its one and only witness. All right, sir, you want to go ahead and come forward here and we'll get you sworn in? Lisa had a pit in her stomach as she watched the witness get up from his seat, walk up to the stand, and sit down, facing everyone in the courtroom. Have a seat. When you're comfortable, take your mask off, state your full name, and spell your last name. <clears throat> David Bogdanov, B-O-G-D-A-N. Just two weeks before this moment, David Bogdanov and his defense team had revealed their strategy for trial. That David was going to claim self-defense as his reason for strangling the 17-year-old. Good morning, Mr. Bogdanov. And this was going to be the first time the public would hear David's account of what he claimed happened the night he met Nikki. I I think there was only one time I got up to leave. Lisa couldn't bear to listen to one word of it. She left the courtroom. I couldn't take it anymore. Um, His testimony was lies. You know, he was lying. I'm Ashley Korslund. You're listening to Should Be Alive, a KGW original podcast. Episode 5 of 6, The Phone Cord. All right, let's get started then to uh, uh, 
bring our jury in and start presentation. Before David Bogdanov would testify in his own defense, the prosecution had to present a rock-solid case to the jury that David strangled Nikki because she was transgender. Deputy prosecutors Colin Hayes and Kristen Arnaud had only known for a few weeks that David was planning on taking the stand. Even though he had, at open, opening statements, mentioned self-defense, he still could have decided at that point to not take the stand and rest on the state has not proved its case. We still had to present our case um, the same way we would have without the self-defense. Throughout the first five days of trial, the prosecution called 35 witnesses to testify. That included Nikki's family and friends, investigators, and experts. What was your ultimate opinion about the cause of death? Like the county medical examiner. The cause of death that I listed for this case was strangulation. Who determined Nikki had been strangled by the cell phone charging cord recovered from Larch Mountain near Nikki's remains. The cord was found knotted around hair and part of a bone from Nikki's neck. What did you base that opinion on? My opinion as far as cause of death is based on the lack of any injuries to explain this person's death. So we talked about the timelines for loss of consciousness. What would you say the timelines for actual death would be when a ligature is involved with strangulation? With a ligature, the time from the interruption of the blood flow to death is incredibly variable and depends on the pressure and how much of the blood vessels are collapsed or compressed. So that could be anywhere from a minute or two up to five or seven minutes. Please state your full name, spell your last name for our record. Carol Boswell, B-O-S-W-E-L-L. The prosecution also called Major Crimes Detective Carol Boswell to testify about the charging cord. I am a sergeant with the Vancouver Police Department. The day Nikki's remains were found, Detective Boswell transported them to the King County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle for examination. And my purpose that day was to take the items up and photograph them. She also photographed all the evidence for Vancouver police records. Each item, I would lay it out, put a ruler to anything that I needed to describe in more detail. Detective Boswell took almost 400 photos. Most of them were of the pieces of clothing that Nikki had been wearing the night she died. Detective Boswell set everything out on a table under a bright overhead light. Looking for whatever evidence I can find on the clothing to determine what, if anything, happened to the person who was found. She wore gloves as she hovered a magnifying glass over each item, looking for microscopic clues perhaps indicating a struggle. And two things stood out. One was the zipper on Nikki's jacket, and the other was the cell phone charging cord formed into a ligature. Explain what a ligature is and, and what it was in this case. So a, a ligature is something used to, in, in this case, tie around someone's neck. And what was found was a phone cord, phone charging cord, that was folded in half. So it was a long cord. It was folded in half, doubled back on itself, and then tied into a small circle, tied with a knot. And there was hair from a wig that was caught in the knot. What was significant about the jacket? The zipper was broken at the top. So if you can imagine, it was 
it's more of a um, like a track jacket. So the zipper was almost all the way to the top, and it was broken off of one side, and the material that is behind the zipper was ripped. What sort of picture did the evidence paint? The ligature, the jacket, the zipper, all of that? I think it was... It was very it was very consistent with someone who was strangled and not just to have something wrapped around their neck, uh, but it was actually tied in a knot around someone's neck and tied in a very small circle. The circle was about four inches in diameter, suggesting it would have been tied extremely tightly around Nikki's neck. It's time the state calls Anessa Adamenko. All right, come forward then, please. On the second day of trial, Arnaud and Hayes called David's ex-girlfriend to testify. Up here, every morning. She was dating David at the time of Nikki's death, and she would become a critical character witness for the prosecution, whether she intended to be or not. Anessa, how do you know David Bakhanov? We dated from spring of 2017 to October, end of October, beginning of November 2018. So about two years. In previous interviews with investigators, Inessa told them her relationship with David was great at first. David was smart, he drove a nice car, and had lots of money. But then he started drinking more, and it began affecting his work. He showed up late or missed jobs altogether. The money he was making started to dwindle, and his staff of employees at his flooring company quit to work elsewhere. Inessa says soon, David spiraled. By the beginning of 2019, months before Nikki's murder, the problems in Inessa and David's relationship intensified. Inessa, do you remember um, the night of June 5th of 2019? I don't remember the night, certain night. I just remember the last time I saw him before he disappeared. What do you recall, what were your plans that last night before he disappeared? Um, We were supposed to hang out. The evening of June 5th, Inessa and David had made plans to get together, but they got into a fight and David left. Later that night, unbeknownst to Inessa, David met Nikki Kuhnhausen. Had he been drinking that night? Yes. Okay. And you'd you'd been dating for two years, so you could tell when he was drinking? Yes. After that night, Inessa didn't hear from David for six weeks. And you said that he disappeared, correct? Yes, he fell off the radar. Okay. So prior to that day, had he told you about going to the Ukraine? No. When was the next time you heard from him after that day? Middle of July. So it was several weeks, even over a month? Yes. Had you tried calling him? Yeah. Did he answer those calls? No. Did he text you? No. Was that normal for him to go uh, radio silence for a month and a half? No. Inessa had no idea where David was. She says she was a mess, even checking hospitals because she was worried something happened to him. And when she repeatedly asked David's family where he went, all they would say is that when David got back, he would explain everything to her. 
Inessa didn't hear from David until mid-July when he returned from Ukraine. He told her he had gone there to get help for his drinking problem. Then, prosecutors get to the heart of why they called Inessa to testify. Inessa, had you ever had an occasion to see David react to someone who was gay or bi or trans? They ask her about David's past behavior toward gay or transgender people. He was disturbed by it. I don't know. I don't know his feeling. I'm sorry. Inessa breaks down crying. Did he ever make any comments about that? Thank you. Take your chances. Do you need a break, Anessa? Yes. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead, ma'am. Step down for a minute. The judge excuses the jury from the room, and the defense team tries to get David's ex-girlfriend removed as a character witness. Uh, I would object to that testimony from that from this witness as uh, improper uh, character witness under ER-404. Citing the testimony would be prejudicial. In other words, it could hurt David's chances of a fair trial. It's more prejudicial than probative under ER-404-3, and uh, it's, uh, I think there's uh, improper foundation for admissibility under ER-404. The judge has to weigh whether the probative value of the testimony or statements useful in proving something important outweighs any prejudicial impact it might have. Um, it is a close call. The question is whether its probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. The judge ultimately rules Inessa's testimony can stay. And this court is unable to sustain the objection on that basis either. So I'm going to overrule the objection. Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Ms. Adamanko, are you ready to proceed then? Yes. All right, thank you. Next. Prosecutor Arnaud continues with her questioning. Ina, do you ever remember David making statements about people who are gay, lesbian, bi, or trans? I don't recall. Do you remember we talked about incidents where you might see, that he might see someone at the mall that he thought was gay or bi? Oh, like that's gross or disgusting? Yeah. Was he angry, agitated, annoyed, or something different? Disgusted. Okay. Nothing further, Your Honor. Another part of the prosecution's case that gets tense in the courtroom involves a series of exhibits admitted into evidence, photographs of items police recovered from a white work van registered to David Bogdanov, the van investigators believed David was in the night he picked up Nikki. That's a view inside the driver's door of the van. A forensic scientist testifies about the items found in the van a few days after David's arrest. So what is 167? That's a picture of a pocket knife uh, that was found in the driver's door compartment. Detectives found a five-inch pocket knife and several rolls of duct tape. A police report noted that a length of silver duct tape was also recovered with Nikki's remains and appeared to consist of more than one layer. The report went on to say, this material is frequently used in unlawfully restraining others. It is also a commonly found material and likely to be possessed by those in the construction trades. So the knife and the duct tape could have been unrelated to Nikki's death. There was no way to know for sure. 
But one other item found in the van wasn't so easy to explain. Do you recognize Exhibit 13? And that is uh, a pair of handcuffs. A pair of silver handcuffs. Your Honor, I, 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 I have a lengthy objection. And I think the jury should be excused. This sends David's defense attorneys into a frenzy. This is, this is malarkey of the highest order, and I'm, this, this is bothersome. The defense team immediately objects to the relevance of the evidence, as Nikki's DNA was never located on the handcuffs. The prosecution argues they were simply trying to show the full scope of the search, including all the items recovered, even if they were not believed to have been used in the crime. I'm just trying to, what, what, what's the materiality of this? What's the relevance of it? How does, I don't... So it's a relevancy objection? Yeah, we're just trying to, to show that there was a thorough and complete investigation. This is malarkey, malarkey. David's defense attorney triples down. What the jury is going to take away from this demonstration here is that, oh, there are handcuffs in this case? There's a knife in this case? So I would object. I I think the jury should be given a limiting instruction or a curative instruction to disregard these images. There's nothing in the police reports to suggest that these are uh, implements of uh, criminal activity uh, in this case. But the only thing the jury is taking away from this demonstration right now is handcuffs and a knife. This is this is malarkey of the highest order, and I'm this this is bothersome. So. We're just trying to show that there was a complete and total uh, investigation and that it does bear on the, the argument of self-defense, Your Honor. Things don't seem to be going well for the defense. So David's attorney makes a bold move. Um, and, and, and I'm going to move for a mistrial. Okay, so you're affirmatively moving for a mistrial and asking this court to declare a mistrial based on prosecutorial misconduct. Is that what yes. we're entertaining here? Yes. After David's defense team moves for a mistrial, the prosecution has a chance to make a counter-argument. Mr. Hayes, your response. Here's Senior Deputy Prosecutor Colin Hayes. They are claiming that self-defense, and we want to be able to show that there were things such as pocket knives or other things around, things that he could have used or tried to use instead of needing to take a life. So we don't know that the handcuffs weren't used in this case. Uh, They very well could have. Um, They are in one of the vans that she was present in. So uh, these are relevant. And if if there's not, even if there was prejudice by these, and I don't know why beads being found in a van is prejudicial to the defense, even if they are in any way prejudicial, it's extremely minute and isn't raising to the level of a mistrial. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, counsel, the the allegation of self-defense in a situation where defendant may take the stand or intends to take the stand, but could change his mind and not take the stand. And we may have a situation where there were only two people, one of whom is now dead in an interaction there. I think that affords the state quite a bit of latitude there. I've cautioned them not to use this evidence for improper purposes, but I'm going to deny the motion for a mistrial based on prosecutorial misconduct. I don't find that that has occurred. Ready to move on? Yes. Thank you. 
Once the prosecution wraps up its portion, it's time for the defense to present its case. And the only witness defense attorneys call to the stand is David Bogdanov. So we, we had no idea what he was going to say up until the moment he actually took the stand. So. Deputy prosecutors Colin Hayes and Kristen Arnault. We knew um, when defense came in, they had a picture of a gun. So we knew, obviously, a gun was going to be involved. They had a picture of a generic gold Audi. So that's when we found out that that was going to be in play. And they had mentioned in pretrial motions that he was going to describe that she had consumed meth in front of him. And that's about all we knew. So we knew it would be difficult for him to give a reasonable, plausible story as to why he needed to kill this person that he was physically much bigger and stronger than. And so we certainly had plenty of ideas about where things might go, but we didn't know for sure. We want to give you a warning. David's testimony includes graphic details about his sexual encounter with Nikki and violent descriptions of her death. Do you have any religious affiliations? As David takes the stand, everyone in the courtroom is silent fixated as defense attorneys begin asking about David's upbringing. Uh, yes, I was born, born and raised into Christianity. And uh, in the last maybe eight years, kind of transitioned into a Christian Jewish. Um, and just been going to church my whole life, pretty much. Do you have certain views of the LGBT community based on your religious or cultural upbringing? Um, yes, yeah, I was, I was taught that, um, it is a sin and it's not okay, um, but as well as other sins. Okay. Um, does this belief mean that you hate LGBTQ members or community people? No, it doesn't mean that. Why not? Because... We are all human. We all we all have things that we do, and I'm not nobody to hate on one person, on another person that does one thing. You know, I have my own my own things to to deal with. Have you ever posted anything on social media or blogs or anything online that would be considered anti-LGBTQ? No. Okay. His attorney then circles back to the earlier testimony from David's ex-girlfriend, Inessa. The state offered testimony through your girlfriend, or your ex-girlfriend, Inessa, um, where they talked about you and her in the mall, where she said that you observed a um, either a gay couple or heterosexual, something, or gay, bisexual, or transsexual couple. And you remarked to her that it was disgusting. Is that right? Yeah. What exactly was disgusting? Um, nothing. Nothing that I can really remember of from that from that moment, except it probably might have been had to have been something something like I probably saw some two men kissing or something like that, which would have prompted me to say say in private to my girl, oh, that's disgusting. Okay, so do you find homosexual activity disgusting then? Um, yeah. Okay, do you hate people though, specifically? No. Okay, 
Did you hate Nikki Kuhnhausen when you found out she was biologically male? No. Okay. Let's turn to the night in question. The conversation shifts to the night David met Nikki. Okay, so when you first appeared to approach Nikki, um, how did she appear to you at that point? Um, she seemed a little emotionally off, maybe upset. Um, and I was trying to talk to her. She just, it was as if she was just like looking right through me, you know, we're looking at each other, but it's, she's like looking past me almost as if. He walks the court through a series of events that he says unfolded that night. How we met Nikki, parted ways, and then met back up with her hours later. And how eventually they drove out to his brother's house in Brush Prairie to switch vehicles from the white van to David's car. That's where David and Nikki sat, talking. David says he went inside to use the bathroom, and when he came back, Nikki was smoking something out of a short glass pipe. I came back um, and I opened my driver's door and saw that Nikki was moved to the back seat now in the back of the car. Okay, and what was Nikki doing at that point? She was smoking something out of a pipe. Can you describe what the pipe looked like? It was just a short glass pipe. Okay, is there anything else you could describe about it, such as smell, look, Um, anything else? Yeah, it smelled really, really strange. like like a battery acid or like if electronics get fried and wired or something it's just this like chemically smell um it's smell like that and um i asked her if she's smoking weed and uh she said no it was meth okay david says he didn't like that nikki was doing drugs in his car but he didn't want to make a big deal of it before he got into the back seat with Nikki, he removed his gun from his waist. He almost always carried the Canic TP9. He took it everywhere but church, where he would leave it in his car. And he always kept the gun loaded. I told her that I concealed carry um, and uh, a concealed carry permit and so that she doesn't freak out or anything. Um, and I... Uh, I reached in and wedged the gun between the center console and the driver's seat, kind of pulled the seat back and just wedged it there is where I oftentimes had it. So if I'm sitting in the driver's seat, it's right by my knee. So what happens next? You're in the back seat with Nikki, the two of you. What happens next? Um, we chatted for a little bit. <clears throat> How long did that last? couple minutes, a minute. And what proceeded from there? Uh, that transitioned into us making out. Was there touching or anything else? Yes. Okay. Who was touching who? It was a <clears throat> little bit of both at first. Um, Where was she touching you? David clears his throat and begins crying as he describes his sexual encounter with Nikki. 
jurors listen intently. She started touching me um, in my private area. So, how long does this last? Really short. Okay. Um, what happens next? I, uh, uh, no, I unbuckled my pants and kind of pull them down a little bit. Okay, how far do you pull your pants down? Like mid-thigh. So, while this is happening, is anything else happening, or what happens next? I... I, uh, reach over as she's bent over. I reach over and put my hand in her pants. Okay. Can you kind of tell me about that? What do you feel when you put your hands in her pants? Um, I worked around the layer of layers of clothing and felt what was clearly a balls and penis. So what's going through your mind at that point? I was in shock. I had just been deceived. So what'd you do next? I freak out and I uh, push her, push her back, push her back towards the passenger's door, and I just start freaking out, saying, "I'm sorry if I cuss, but I was saying, you know, what the fuck? What is this? You didn't tell me you're a dude." And um, started started yelling at her to uh, said she, she's a Disgusting, disgusting piece of, piece of crap. So what happens there? I, uh, I, I, was tell, I, was, I was trying to pull my pants back up, and I was telling her to get, get the hell out of my car. And what happens next, according to David, is that Nikki attacked him. So as you're pulling your pants out, back up and telling her to get the hell out of the car, then what happens? Um... She, she lunges at me and hits me across the face. And then how do you react? I shove her, shove her kind of hard. I turn and push her back to her driver's seat and I keep telling her to just get the fuck out of my car. Okay, then what does she do? When she, when she hit, hit the passenger's door with her back, when I shoved her, she... She kind of picked up her foot and tried to just kick me with her foot from the passenger side. Um, and at that time, I tried to try to swipe her feet so she doesn't hit me in the face. Or and I block her feet and I put them down into the footwell. And at that time, when I put them down, she just jumps up and goes towards the center console towards my gun. What, what are you thinking at this point when she jumps or springs towards the center console and you think she's going for your gun? What's going through your mind? Um, I... I'm thinking, you know, I just was deceived by this person and... This person's high on meth. She's 
jumping for my gun. At this point, the overwhelming feeling and thought was like a fight or flight mode just kicks in. And all I can think is, oh my God, I'm gonna get shot right now. This person's crazy. If this person were to get the gun and pull the trigger, do you think it would have likely went off? Absolutely. Okay. Were you afraid that she was going to get the guns? Yes. Were you afraid that she was going to kill you with the gun? Objection yes. leading. The prosecution objects. Overruled. You can answer. But the judge rules. David can answer the question. Yes or no question. Yes. Okay. So she springs for the gun. Then what happens? The first time she springs for the gun to the center console, then what happens? I try to restrain her and pull her back to keep her away from the gun. And how do you do that? I tried grabbing her by her jacket from, from behind and just try to pull her back. So you tried to grab her by the green jacket? Yes, and that uh, it, might, it was kind of slippery. It was like a windbreaker material and just slipped out of my hands. And when I, I, I kind of yanked her back and then slipped and she just started fighting me, el elbowing me in the face and trying to grab the seats and reach forward. Um, and then I go for her again and just grab her by the collar with one hand and yank her back and trying to keep her hands down, go over her, over her shoulders and to keep her hands behind so that she can't reach for the gun. So what happens next? How does the struggle proceed? I couldn't couldn't get a hold of her, uh, couldn't couldn't stop her, and then in the passenger seat, um, the front passenger seat in the rear pocket um, was hanging out my phone cord, my charging cable, and in the in that struggle, I, I I grabbed that cable and put it around her, and so I can hold on to it and pull her back like that and hold her, hold her from, from going, keep going forward for the gun. David says he had one hand on each end of the cable. He positioned it against Nikki's chest. Um, started around the chest area, and then when I pulled her back, it just kind of kind of slowly slipped up. Um, well, not slowly, quickly slipped up and up to her throat. So when you put it around her, was it around her arms or under her arms? No, it was, it was over, not, okay. not under. So then it slipped up to her neck? Yes. Okay, what happens at that point? I, I, I pull her back and try to keep her from the gun and just lean to the, to the side a little bit. What is she doing? And the whole time she's trying to fight me and just reaching back and scratching at my face, trying to gouge my eyes. At some point does she stop struggling? Yes. Okay. When she stopped struggling, what did you do? Did you continue to... to... I, uh, she passed out. Um, and I thought she just passed out, you know? Um, like, I've seen, I've seen on TV and fighting sports, people get choked out and they just go to sleep for, for a little bit. Um, I push her off to the side and uh, go for my gun myself to secure the gun. With Nikki's motionless body next to him, David grabbed his gun from between the console and the seat, got out of the car, and put it in the trunk. Was she? He says he didn't think Nikki was dead at this point. So, 
I guess you have some choices to make at this point, right? What do you do? What are your options? I, uh, I just started to start feeling full sense of panic. And I'm scared and I don't know what to do. Um, he says he checked for a pulse, but couldn't find one. I First thing I think is I need to call the police. And, and then I think that they're not going to believe me. You know, I've been up all night, not sober. Um, there's drugs in the car. There's a dead person in the back seat. Yeah, I just didn't think they're going to believe me. So what, what other options did you consider at that point? At that point, I thought I need to get rid of the body. Because this was a very humiliating thing that happened to me at first, and I was, I was just scared. I didn't, didn't want my family to know. I just wanted to put this behind me, like wishing it, was, it never happened. David says he panicked and remembered a remote part of Larch Mountain where he'd been target shooting before. He thought that would be a good place to dispose of Nikki's body. And when you got up there, what did you do? I pulled her, I pulled her out of the car and there was that spot by the road where the hill just went down really steep. I just, just kind of pushed her, pushed her down that. And at that point, you never saw Nikki again, I assume? No. The attorney then asked David to explain how the cell phone cord would have been tied into a circle and knotted as it was found at Larch Mountain. Can you explain that? It's a really long cable, it's five or six foot cable, and... David says the answer is simple. Before he ever met Nikki, he folded the charging cord that he kept in his car in half. Because it was so long, it would often get tangled up between the seat and the center console. So what I did is just folded it in half so that the two ends, the USB end and the end that goes into the phone are together and tied that so that they're together. So I just have the USB stuck into the outlet and then the other end just goes right into my phone. Um, and then there was still that tail, so I had it folded a second time and just loosely loosely knotted a couple times so that it doesn't get tangled up in the mechanics underneath the seat and the seat belt, seat belt buckle. He maintains the knots tied in the cord were like that before Nikki died. So what I understand, is this like a form of like cord management so it doesn't fall under the seat? Yes. Okay. The questioning then moves on to David's flight to Ukraine, hours after Nikki died. David says that he left the country because he was scared. He knew he needed to get help for his drinking problem. Can you tell the jury why, why you left the country? Um, I was scared, an emotional wreck. Um, and I was, I was thinking, I need to, I need to quit my drinking, and that I likely would have not have been in this situation if I hadn't been drinking and 
in the last couple of years prior to this, I just kind of went went into drinking a lot. And if I wasn't out that night uh, getting drunk, I would have never ran into Nikki. Was it your intention to hurt Nikki? Never. Did you kill her because you found out she was biologically male and had deceived you? No. Do you feel under the circumstances and the moment of the struggle that you had any other option? I was in a fight or flight moment. I thought about it a lot. If there's anything that I can have, could have done different. And in that situation, I don't see how I could have acted in a different way because if she would have gotten the gun, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I would be in a different box. So you believe that she would have killed you, no doubt? Yes. Anything else? That's all the questions I have right now, Your Honor. Now, it's the prosecution's turn to cross-examine David. You were 25 years old at the time of the killing, right? Yes. You're six foot two, correct? Um, maybe six one, somewhere between six one and six two. Your driver's license says 6'2", correct? DMV doesn't check. They just write what you tell them. So you put down, I am 6'2". Yeah. And at the time of the killing, you were about 200 pounds. Isn't that right? Something like that, yeah. 190 to 200 pounds is usually my average weight. And did you agree that Nikki appeared about 5'8", inches? Yeah. Would you agree that Nikki appeared to be about 110 pounds? It was hard to gauge her weight. I mean, she had the coat on, but if I were to guess, I would say she was maybe 130. Nikki didn't appear to be particularly strong. Isn't that correct? During the struggle, she was very strong, very wiry. Well, it'd be fair that she was probably fighting for her life, right? Objection, argumentative. I'll move on. Sustain. You did manual labor at the time, right? Yes. Isn't it true that with your size and strength advantage, you knew you would be able to overpower Nikki in a physical altercation? I didn't know that I'd be able to overpower her, but I was definitely trying to keep her away from the gun. And I would say, thank goodness I have the strength because otherwise it might have been different if I wasn't a strong person. You used an iPhone charging cord to strangle Nikki, correct? Yes. When you found out that she was transgender, you were furious. I wasn't furious, I was more of shocked, shocked at being deceived. You were really pissed off, right? I didn't know what was going on. I, I, was, I was confused more, not pissed off. You felt deceived, you just said, right? Yes. And you were pissed that someone had deceived you. I was upset, I wasn't, I wasn't furious. So you were upset that you'd been deceived? Of course, who wouldn't be? What straight male wouldn't be in that kind of a situation? Earlier you said you called her a disgusting piece of crap. What exactly did you say to her? Those weren't your words, right? You said something else? Uh, 
disgusting piece of shit. So you called her a disgusting piece of shit. For deceiving me. You said something along the lines of, what the fuck, you disgusting piece of shit. Yes. Prosecutor Hayes lasers in on David's testimony about the cell phone cord and how it ended up formed into a ligature. David had claimed the cord slipped up from Nikki's chest to her neck. So in the heat of this, you thought it would be a good idea to use a cord to restrain her around the chest. Well, the jacket, I I couldn't get a grip on her. She was just like a worm, like all over the place. And I couldn't get a grip on the jacket to like stop her. And you thought a phone card would help you with that? I wasn't thinking, it was a life or flight situation. My mind was on reaction. So when you put the cord around her, you're testifying that it was your intention to just restrain her around the chest area, is that right? It was my intention just to keep her away from the gun, restrain her, yes. And it's your testimony that the cord just happened to slip up to her neck? Yes. That was totally unintentional on your part? It was unintentional. But you didn't stop using it at that point, did you? Because she was actively fighting me. I was yelling for her to stop. All I could do was just keep repeating myself, stop, stop, stop. And she actively kept reaching over and trying to turn around and like get in my eyes and my face. So she was trying to stop you from strangling her, correct? No. You could have bear hugged her at any point in time, right? It was, that's kind of what I was trying to do. It wasn't working out. Nothing was working. You could have easily removed her from the car if you'd wanted to, given your size and strength difference. Again, that's what I was doing. It was not working. And after she stopped moving, you continued putting pressure on her neck. No, after she stopped moving, that's when I let go. And you think that was a minute? No. Between her stopping moving and me letting go, it was right away. But the struggle with the phone cord was 30 seconds, maybe, um, maybe 40 seconds, 45. So do your testimony that as soon as she stopped moving, you released pressure on her neck? When the threat was stopped, I let go. At the time that she was strangled, you were aware that putting a cord around someone's neck and engaging in strangulation can cause death. That was something you were... I wasn't thinking about that. So it never occurred to you that the strangulation could actually kill her? No, because that wasn't my intentions. So it never crossed your mind that's something that could happen? No. Prosecutor Hayes then asked David about what would have happened had his friends and family found out about his sexual encounter with Nikki, being that she was transgender. You were terrified of the thought of someone else thinking that you were gay if they found out what happened between you and Nikki. Well, the Russian community isn't really, doesn't take in the gay community with open arms. 
Yes. Yeah, so and it would be really bad for you if anyone ever found out about this, right? It would be humiliating. I would probably be shunned. Yeah, you would be an outcast in your community, right? Yes. Your family would not talk to you. Oh, they'd still talk to me. They're my family, but... It wouldn't be the same, would it? Probably not. And the thought of people finding out about this was really scary to you. Um, humiliating. Yeah, you were humiliated in that moment, correct? Yes. Before the prosecutor wraps up cross-examination, he asks David about the trip to Ukraine. More specifically, what happened to his Audi back in Vancouver, the car Nikki was strangled in? So after getting to Ukraine, you knew somebody who could dispose of vehicles, and you called that person? It was like, yeah, the same day still. At that point, I haven't slept in like 48, 72 hours by the time I got to Ukraine. So what did you tell him to do with the vehicle? Just to get rid of it. Okay. So you called somebody to make your vehicle disappear? Yes. To this day, police have never recovered David's Audi or the gun David claimed Nikki was trying to get during their struggle. If you ask almost any criminal defense attorney, perhaps the most difficult question they face is whether to have their client testify during a trial. Having a defendant testify is risky. It opens them up to a slew of questions during cross-examination from a prosecutor. But in self-defense cases like David Bogdanov's, it can also be the best way to convince a jury of their innocence. Because David's attorneys declined to be interviewed, we consulted a legal expert to analyze David's testimony. I am Joe Tamburino. I'm an attorney, legal analyst. Attorney Joe Tamburino has a private practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and has served as a legal analyst on high-profile cases like the Derek Chauvin murder trial. I do criminal defense. I've done prosecution, personal injury, forfeitures, other civil matters. Uh, I've been an attorney since 1989, licensed in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the federal courts. I've had, I think, about 110 jury trials. Um, I've been doing this for almost 33 years. Joe has no connection to David Bogdanov's case, but he did watch David's testimony for us. As a defense attorney, how do you decide when to put your client on the stand, when to have them take the stand in their own defense, because that can be risky. It's very risky. But in affirmative defense cases, specifically self-defense, you almost always have to put your client up on the stand. Why? Because even though a defendant doesn't have a burden of proof, in all criminal cases, doesn't matter if they're in Guam or Georgia or Minnesota, anywhere, the prosecution has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So you never have the burden. However, you have basically what's known as a burden of production for self-defense. You have to put on some credible evidence that you were acting in self-defense. 
So there is a lot of strategy involved in deciding who to put up on the stand, when to do it. Um, It's like a cost-benefit analysis situation. That's exactly right. You have to think of trials as a chess game. For every move, not only is there a counter move, but there's another move to counter that and another move to counter that. A chess game where attorneys must strategize about what move to make next and when to make it, who to call to the stand to testify. Now, in self-defense cases, that trade is always peacefulness. It is always good from the defense side, if you can, to put forth witnesses that will tell the jury, uh, members of the jury, this defendant is, except for this case, a very peaceful person. I've known him for 15 years. He would never harm a flea. He's someone that avoids physical conflict. He avoids even verbal arguments. He, He is of a peaceful nature. That is his reputation. Interestingly, David's attorneys called no one to do that. They didn't bring in any character witnesses who could testify on David's behalf. So if you had such evidence, it's good to use. And in most self-defense cases, legitimate self-defense cases, you will have those pieces of evidence. Now, in this case, they obviously didn't. Joe believes there were two other critical factors going against David during trial. The first was that initial police interview David did with Detective Jensen two months before his arrest, when David lied about knowing what happened to Nikki the night she disappeared. And the second thing? The cell phone cord. You know, when I was listening to him, the thing that I thought of is he's a grown man, 25 years old, I believe at the time, in very good shape, 6'1 or 6'2, 200 pounds, obviously a strong individual. Um, Nikki was, you know, she was light. Um, She, you know, didn't appear like she was muscular. And what I kept thinking is, okay, if she really attacked him, why didn't he just punch her? I mean, it would think about how different this case would have been if, say, he punched Nikki and it was just one of those situations that the punch caused her to hit her head on some part of the car and that caused her death. Still would have been charged with a homicide, probably a negligent homicide like a manslaughter. It would have changed this case completely. But when you're talking, oh, I grabbed this cord and it slipped. But then obviously the evidence, I mean, like you mentioned, that hyoid bone, I think it is in the top of your neck, that was so compressed that it had hair in it. I mean, you know, that can only happen by you're really choking this person. What did you think as you're watching him get emotional? He cries. He describes the moment where um, he's, you know, having intimate contact with Nikki Kuhnhausen and he discovers she's trans. Um, and he breaks down on the stand. How did that go over when you're watching that? What did you make of that? It was hard to believe it because why did he break down when he found out that she had a penis? Rather, why wouldn't you break down when he talks about how she's supposedly trying to kill him or get his gun or something like that? I mean, I think to an average juror, one would say, Okay, you didn't know that this person had a penis. You find out that they did. Is it shocking? Sure, I guess. Okay, I'll grant you that. But is it something that you would break down and cry about? Uh, You know, I think to most people it would be, okay, you were surprised. Okay, you didn't know this. Yes, it's shocking. But is it something you break down and cry about? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe it. How would you have handled this if he were your client? How would you have um, defended the case? 
try to work out a plea bargain. Absolutely. With a case like this and that statement, if he didn't give statements, no, then it would be a different case. He wouldn't even have to testify. I mean, think about it. If he didn't give a statement, um, you know, what would he have been charged with? Could have been the same. Would they have charged him? Perhaps. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard. But after he gave a statement, it was sealed. Of course, Joe Tamburino wasn't in the courtroom watching it unfold in real time. But the jurors were. We wanted to get their perspective on what happened in the courtroom and in the jury room. So we contacted all 12 people who sat on the jury. One of them agreed to an interview. That was juror number three, Brittany. What was it like to sit in there seeing Nikki's family in there and also David's family? That must have been quite interesting, that dynamic. It is really interesting because, you know, you have the one family who's, you know, Nikki's family, um, who's just heartbroken, obviously, and um, so sad to lose a a daughter and all of her friends, and she was widely loved um, by many people. And then you see David's family who swear up and down that he would never intentionally do something like this, that his character is not the type to um, murder somebody intentionally. And this is just a huge misunderstanding kind of thing is, and so it, it was hard and um, you know, you wish that both sides could be happy at the end, but obviously it's, you know, it doesn't turn out that way in, in cases like this. Brittany says she and her fellow jurors listened closely as David spoke But it was when he got on the stand and was able to remove his mask. Um, You know, we could see his full face for the first time. And we could tell his body language and his facial expressions while he's telling his story. And during his testimony, it was like really shocking because as he was telling his story, the pieces were not fitting together with what we were presented with. Um, physical evidence wise so we had heard everything we had seen the ev- the physical evidence we had talked to the medical examiner and everything and then David gets on the stand and he tells his side and you can just that's when everything came together for me and I knew that he was not being honest and truthful in his story and that was really a turning point for me where I kind of knew where I was going to go with my decision because before this, you know, it was all still very up in the air. And what was the big difference for you? What really was the catalyst that kind of solidified your decision? Yeah, so for me, the big thing was the charging cord. Because he said that when he dumped Nikki's body, it was not tied around her neck. But the physical evidence, the actual charging cord was in, it was found in, an, in the knot, which had the diameter of, you know, a, a neck. And so that when it was found, the charging cord was tied in so many tight, tight knots that it was tied so tightly that you couldn't, like, untie it with your fingers. And so for me, it was the, the evidence of the ligature that he used because it just told the whole story. And then there was that moment David cried on the stand while explaining his sexual encounter with Nikki. 
that was the only time that he cried, um, which tells me a lot about his character, um, you know, being embarrassed for being caught, quote unquote, hooking up with a transgender woman, feeling shameful for that. Um, you know, he didn't cry during any other part of his testimony when he's describing the fight, when he's describing strangling her, when he's describing um, driving to Larch and disposing of her body. He didn't cry during any of those parts, but only the sexual act of the story. And so that really just stood out to me as, you know, how he really feels about the situation. There was a lot for the jurors to weigh after two weeks of testimony. So when it came time for deliberations back in the jury room, they decided to role-play the scenario David described in the back of the car, a reenactment of the fight between David and Nikki. David had said that basically the entire time they were struggling and physically fighting, and the whole time Nikki's reaching for the gun, but also... Um, punching him at the same time is what he said. What he said was, she tried to gouge my eyes out. Um, So we kind of set ourselves up, uh, like we had chairs, and we kind of set ourselves up into like a four seat, like, you know, the two front seats and then um, the rear seats of a car kind of thing. And like, got some items like, okay, here is where the gun would have been. Here is where... David would have been sitting and here is where Nikki would have been sitting and kind of got, I mean, reenacted it as best we could according to David's testimony. It helped jurors conceptualize the alleged struggle and it led them to determine that Nikki couldn't have reached the gun. The way she was positioned in the back seat meant she wasn't close enough. By reenacting and just kind of seeing what it might have been like in that situation, Uh, we came up with that that would have been, you know, a lie because he was much closer. And if they had been fighting the whole time, um, Nikki wouldn't have been able to reach for the gun because he kind of had her held back in the seat. So it was just a very, like, emotional thing. But because we reenacted it, I think we were really able to get, like, a good idea that that was just not an accurate what he said was not accurate to what actually happened. It it took a while. You you deliberated for several days. Could you tell the weight of the case and the pressure to come to a decision was weighing on you and your fellow jurors? Yeah. Uh, I mean, some people cried in the jury room um, coming to this um, decision, you know, because it is affecting two lives. Um, you know, some people cried, some people, um, we were, there were a lot of really high emotions when all was said and done. While Brittany and almost all of the rest of our fellow jurors had come to a consensus on their verdict, there was one juror who didn't. You know, there was one juror out of the rest of us who just couldn't comfortably say that he was guilty. And that holdout threatened to derail the entire case against David Bogdanov. Next time on Should Be Alive. It was like we put in all this work. We sat through this trial for two weeks. 
like there were tears there were i mean i was more angry than anything because i couldn't understand how this person couldn't see the truth when it was laid right out in front of us she did not think that he intended to kill her and we sent a letter to the judge saying that this juror was not budging. They were not changing their mind, and so there was no reason for us to go any further. You were worried there could be a mistrial. I was terrified. Should Be Alive is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please follow and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash shouldbealive and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin and Nick Bieber. Audio assistance by Andy Thomas and Vince Jones and digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Will Mahon and Jennifer Woodruff. Our Tegna legal counsel is Will Herman. Special thanks to Lyndon Walls with Idea Stack Creative, KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. And if you like this show, check out our other podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car.